episode 185, How to Be Patient-Centric, Not Clinical Trial-Centric. Today, I speak with Pablo Griver, founder and CEO of Antidote. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. It is a pretty tough challenge for a patient to find an appropriate clinical trial. At the same time, if you're a pharma company or a CRO or a researcher, recruiting appropriate patients is often a challenge. Pablo Griver is the CEO and founder of Antidote, a company which aims to connect patients and clinical trials. This matters even more these days as pharmaceutical agents become ever more targeted to ever narrower patient cohorts with specified clinical markers, and as we get ever more aware of variations in response rates relative to gender, age, and ethnicity, and comorbidities. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Pablo, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, nice to meet you, and nice to be here. What is the problem with what's going on with clinical trials today? Clinical trials are obviously in hugely important for the development of new drugs and making sure that they are effective and they are safe for patients to, to use. But, you know, it's based on science that is still in discovery and involving uh, sometimes tens of thousands of patients and over multiple years. There are a lot of complexities and, and challenges that uh, clinical trials need to overcome. This was from the very beginning, also until today, the, despite the advances on, in technology and new media and so on. And the kind of issues are all around from the operational issues, collecting and, and sharing data, from finding the right candidates for studies. And then there are also other issues that, you know, we haven't been able as an industry to solve, but, you know, many people are working on that, including ourselves, is making clinical trials more uh, mainstream, more accessible to patients. Uh, clinical trials offer also a lot of hope and opportunities for patients with unmet medical needs. And it's really, really important to make sure that everyone has uh, access to the information and eventually to participation in these trials. Those are some of the issues. And there are many others that go from making sure that the data is shared effectively between researchers. So new clinical trials don't go over the same mistakes and, and pitfalls than, than the previous ones. There are issues around making sure that they are less cumbersome for patient participation, that they're fair, that they're transparent. So there are all sorts of challenges that I think, you know, we will need much more than half an hour to, to kind of go over each one of them. Yeah. And one of them that you said really struck me because it's something that has hindered much, I think, which is that people don't report on lack of success. They only report on success, which means a trial could run and it could prove that something, I mean, not just a drug even, is ineffective. But without the publication of the lack of success, then either people keep doing the thing or keep trying to prove it over and over and over again, not realizing that someone else did it. 
There is in principle an obligation to report results regardless of, of whether the trial failed or succeeded. But it is not uncommon that some organizations do not report on trials that, that fail. And unfortunately, that data is also super critical, as you say. Yeah, I interviewed Jennifer Miller, who is a bioethicist, and she created the Good Pharma Scorecard. And that is actually one of the things that she ranks pharma companies on the transparency of trials that didn't succeed or didn't prove the hoped-for outcome. That's right. So we have a tool within our platform that allows pharmaceutical, biotech organizations and other researchers to voluntarily disclose from the beginning whether they are going to be sharing the data openly, if they're going to make it public, and also if they're going to share the individual patient's data back with those patients that participate. Not all trials do. Before we get to what should be, maybe let's talk a little bit about what currently the state of clinical trials is. Based on what I know, and maybe this is a question, would it be fair to say that not much really has altered in clinical trials in the past 20 years? I think that clinical trials, in a way, it may seem that things are stagnated and, and they, nothing has changed much, but I think that's, that's not true. When you actually look a little bit more carefully, there are many things that have changed and are changing, some for the good, some not for the good. <laughs> so, for example, when you look at the costs of running clinical trials, this is actually increasing and increasing over time which is not a great development. It's exactly the opposite of what happens in technology in terms of productivity and, and scalability. That's not great. Now, on the other side, I think there's been a lot of progress to make patients' awareness and participation easier and more fair. So there's a range of initiatives and technologies that are aimed at that. For example, virtual or remote trials and, and everything that has to do with that. So helping patients not having to go to a clinical site that may be far away from them or, or trying to eliminate the number of visits required, even the informed consent process. There's ways to do this, you know, virtually as well. There's also like, you know, the double-edged sword, if you want. The advancements in, in medicine and the advancements in technology are making it increasingly hard to find new treatments that are substantially better than the existing ones. Together that with the advancement in, in genomics and precision medicine, what's happening is that we are able to develop treatments that are more and more effective for a smaller and smaller subset of the population. So that is great for those you know, subsets of patients, but as a whole is fragmenting the process and making it much more difficult to create new treatments and to operate, you know, run those clinical trials efficiently. This, the, the rise of uh, social media and the rise of communications between patients, between patients and researchers, between researchers themselves. So there's a lot of things that are actually improving. We sometimes forget that even 10 years ago, the word or the phrase digital health did not exist. Nobody was using the word or the phrase digital health. And today it has a lot of meaning also in clinical trials. So I think that, you know, there are reasons to be 
optimistic about the future. But I think, you know, unfortunately, there are still so many things that, you know, we still need to improve. We were talking about before about the transparency and fairness of clinical trials, which is probably at the same place where it was some time ago or not too significant improvements. There are things about patient participation. There are improvements for sure. We see that in particularly in some type of trials. But as a whole, we still have that less than 5% of the population are even aware of their potential participation in clinical trials. As a summary, I would say that, you know, it's not black, it's not white, it's, it's, a, it's a gray area that, you know, some things we are improving, some things we're improving faster, and some things we're unfortunately not going, you know, too fast. I'd like to focus on the participation angle that you had just brought up. On one hand, Obviously, technology enables a much more easier outreach. You know, if you've got social media, you can reach more patients than you could in the days of hang a flyer on a bulletin board and <laughs> send a direct yeah. mail letter to, to providers. On the other hand, you also mentioned the fact that drugs under development today, some of these orphan drugs are really designed for a very small slice of the patient population. And as the drugs get more complicated and as medicine gets more complicated, just with the biomarkers and whatnot, the one thing that I could really see as an issue here, especially if we're talking about statistical significance and controlling for variables, we're trying to get statistically significant results from a very small number of potential patients and patients who might be suffering from one of these orphan conditions may not have a clean profile. In other words, like it's been often talked about for years that the patients get excluded from the trial who are actually going to take the drug in the real world. It's yeah. a drug for geriat mostly geriatric patients and some healthy 19-year-old is taking it because they got to control for a lot of variables if someone signs up for the trial who has 10 comorbid <laughs> conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know this is kind of a broad, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, so first of all, in terms of uh, just to cover the first part of the, of the question, I think that social media is not necessarily allowing us to reach more patients. You know, you had before radio and especially television that is still used, by the way. And, you know, that also, you know, was reaching, you know, huge amounts of people. The benefits of social media and online marketing in, in general is that it allows us to be much more precise into the patient population that you want to target. Now, in terms of the statistical significance and more broadly, the concern about uh, studies that are designed for a, you know, kind of a very a model uh, of population that, you know, is questionable whether they really reflect the patients in the real world. That is absolutely one of the other issues that I probably forgot to mention before, but is still not having changed much. In fact, there is a lot of you know debate whether this is even going in the right direction and, and the practice of, uh, or at least the, the concern that some organizations may be really paying a lot of attention and the design of the trials so it actually passes the clinical trial and is approved by the FDA, rather than if they really reflect the real traits of the patient population that they will be trying to treat, you know, later on. On the one side, the FDA, obviously, and other authorities are, are very aware of this, and, and I'm sure they're looking, you know, always at, at this angle, and, and there's a lot of articles as well about how much they 
worry this and, and they raise they raise flags for, for some studies. But on the other side, having uh, worked closely with pharmaceutical companies and researchers over the last few years, you also appreciate that it's not an easy thing to design a trial that is going to give conclusive results. So even when you have even the best intentions, the answer is not that straightforward and so simple. So the problem still exists. And how do we make sure that we run a clinical trial that on the one side we can control for all the potential variables so we get kind of clean data, clean results, but on the other side, at the same time, I reflective of a population that is by definition complex. Yeah, for sure. Although you could probably make an equally compelling argument, is a clinical trial done on 19-year-old white males even relevant to a patient population that's going to be made up by a variety of ethnic group, geriatric yeah. female patients? There's a huge concern and, and also in some companies, a specific uh, teams that are uh, at pharmaceutical companies that are looking into initiatives that could bring more diversity into clinical trials to make sure that all the right ethnic groups are represented, that the right sexes are represented, that the age groups are you know properly also distributed. So I agree with you. At the same time, I know that, you know, it's it's complex and, and it's this kind of like, you know, tug of war, if you want between the organizations that are trying to uh, run the companies and develop new drugs, at the same time, the medical teams that are trying to isolate the population in a way that they can get the right data. And then on the other side, the regulators that are trying to get as close to real world evidence as possible from a clinical trial. Yeah, I was just going to ask you something about real world evidence, which is, does the collection of real world evidence and clinical trials mesh together? And I, I say this because in Europe, actually, real world evidence is part of the drug approval, the nice drug mm -hmm. approval process. Yes. But, but how, how does the industry sort of see this in the United States? Is you know, you've got on one side real world evidence, and on the other side, here's our clinical trial data. Or are those two buckets of data being amalgamated or reviewed or pulled together in any sort of systematic way? Not systematic, but there are definitely, there's a crossover and there are some initiatives in particular to run the trial. So two examples. One is I, I've seen recently a presentation of a clinical trial that was, there's a, it was like a virtual clinical trial, if you want, a simulation that was not run against a placebo, but against previous real world evidence uh, from previous treatments in the real world. So you were comparing data in this case from a new drug in development and then kind of bringing, amalgamating, as you were saying, you know, this real world evidence to compare kind of like, you know, past existing data to a clinical trials data. So that was very interesting. And then on the other side, on the real world evidence, is that this is used also to help in the feasibility process to design the clinical trials. So they are kind of linked together in a way when the researchers and the investigators are designing clinical trials, they try to use part of this real world evidence to bring it back and say, okay, so this is one of the inputs that we use to understand how we should try this uh, new drug. Are patients interested in this? What types of patients are the ones that are going to be included in some of these trials? As a whole, and this is the main point, 
four or five percent of the population are taking a step forward within the clinical trial space. The main problem is that people, number one, are not even aware that these opportunities or these treatments exist. If they are familiar with them or they heard about them, the way that this information is usually accessible to patients is very hard, very cryptic, is extremely hard to navigate even for medical professionals. And then once you you know, if you are aware of clinical trials and you try to understand, you know, a study or you found a study that you may be interested in that may be relevant to you, your chances of actually participating are actually still small because of the things that we were saying before. We believe that one of the biggest challenges in the clinical trials world is scarcity. It's scarcity of patients that are willing and able to participate in a clinical trial. You had just made a comment that there's a, just a very small proportion of patients who are motivated to go checking around to see if there's a clinical trial. And then maybe that patient applies, I'm not sure what the right word is, registers to see if they can qualify to be in that one particular clinical trial and say the answer is no. And then the patient goes away. And maybe there's two other ones which are sort of similar or for a similar condition, but the patient didn't figure that out and they're bio or their registration or their questionnaire that they yeah. filled out never gets transferred over. So it's kind of like missed opportunity there. But is it the providers that are then skulking around looking for patients? Like how do how do most patients yeah. wind up getting recruited? So so you're getting to the heart of especially one of the key things that we are we're addressing. So first of all, how do patients even get to know or hear about clinical trials? Typically it's it's done in, in kind of three ways. Number one is through the doctor. You go to see your doctor and the doctor says, hey, by the way, you know, there's this clinical trial that I think you should consider. The benefit is that, you know, it's done between the patient and the treating physician. There is a trust element. There is easier access to information and, and, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, doctors or physicians don't really have, first of all, an incentive to find, to look for clinical trials for their patients. And even if they did, it's incredibly hard because the information is unstructured. It's not easy to search with a computer. So it requires a, a lot of time and resources to find a, a clinical trial that may be relevant for, a, for just one individual patient. And that's even if you are a medical professional, a doctor or a nurse. The other way is uh, patients just hearing about a clinical trial and obviously they become curious and then they go and search and they try to connect with the medical teams that are running those trials. And again, that information is not easy to find. And even when you actually are able to do that and you are speaking to the medical teams running those trials, your chances of actually participating in that trial are actually small. And the third uh, kind of you know way that you know patients are hearing about clinical trials is in, in a kind of outbound way. So pharmaceutical companies, uh, CROs, investigators, all different organizations running clinical trials, either directly or through companies that work with them, they reach out to different patient populations to let them know that they may qualify for a trial, and then they basically try to bring them into into the fold and, and tell them more about the study and see if they qualify. The problem with that avenue, if you want, is that it's completely trial-centric. It's not really trying to solve the problem of the patient or address the problems of a patient who has, a, you know, an unmet medical need and is looking for a trial. It's 
done from the point of view of the study. So what you're really doing there is you're trying to see if this patient meets the criteria of this particular trial. And if they do, that's great. Go to door number uh, number one. But if you don't, <laughs> go to door number two that is actually the exit because you're not relevant to us. So it's really a very unfriendly process from that point of view. What we've done at Antidote, which is, is, is kind of like, you know, the, the technical breakthrough in all this, is we have taken the eligibility criteria of all of these trials and we have structured it in a way that we can use computers to search across multiple trials at the same time to see what trials meet the criteria or the characteristics of a single patient. So if I'm a patient and I'm like, look, I, I want to, you know, I have something affecting my quality of life. I've got a friend who, who yeah. I would like to help or I'm kind of just interested in getting some care. In either one of those cases, if I've decided that I would like to be in a clinical trial, then I input my information and then a list pops up. Here's all the trials that might be relevant for you. Let me give you an, an analogy. Suppose, you know, uh, online travel. The way that the industry works today, they look for patients, in this case, or for travelers, let's continue the, the analogy, um, that they look for travelers that are looking to fly between New York and Tokyo on the 19th of October in the morning on an aisle seat, and they're willing to pay X amount of money and fly alone and are only going to be putting a checking in a one piece of luggage. So they're really cookie cutting the, the type of of, in this case, travelers that they're looking for. Unless you want to go to, to that flight and you're willing to travel in those days and all that, you're not relevant to that flight. So imagine you go to an online travel website and there's only one flight. And in order to see if you can even buy that ticket, you need to comply with all the characteristics that I just mentioned before. If you don't, you don't you're not even able to buy the ticket. The way that we are doing it is the normal experience that you see with online travel. We, having structured all the data of these trials, we start by asking you, where do you want to fly to and from where? What dates do you want to go? How much you want to pay? And so on and so forth. And then we show you what flights are available, in this case, what clinical trials are available that meet those requirements. You can only do that if you have structured information that is machine readable and organized. And that was something that did not exist until we did it here at Antidote. If only, I think you said 5% of the population is looking around for a clinical trial, do you see that number increasing just because of the ease? The other thing that I could kind of see is if someone enters their data into a sustainable system, then I might have been really, let's just say, engaged in looking for a clinical trial six months ago, but there was nothing available. I've forgotten about it, but my data is still in there. So then suddenly out of the blue, I get a notice you know, today, like, hey, you're eligible. So it's kind of a compounding sort of thing as opposed to I'm involved this week and then I drop off. And so basically the 5% only consists of the people that are actively engaged like now. Yes. So we, we are literally addressing that. One of the things that we've done, for example, to help these connections between motivated patients and, uh, and medical researchers on the other side is, first of all, we've partnered with hundreds of health websites, 
patient organizations, online communities, blogs and forums, all sorts of websites. What we've done is we're bringing our tool, our engine to help them find matching trials. What happens is that when these patients are using this engine, at the same time, they can sign up for what we call a trial alert that is going to be activated when a new clinical trial meets all the criteria that they um, that they provided. And how many patients are in your system right now? We have about half a million patients currently. And then on the other side, a pharmaceutical company would hire you. And I'm sure, I'm assuming that your business model is that the pharmaceutical company is paying for this. We work with pharmaceutical companies and CROs and also now with uh, research sites. Essentially, where our business model is, they pay us to connect with patients using our platform. It's a blinded private database where they can see all the patients that signed up without any kind of personal identifiable information, but enough information that they can see if they meet criteria of any of the studies that are running there. So in a way, without trivializing this, but in a way it's like match.com. You have on the one side patients that are flowing in and saying, hey, I'm interested in a trial. Let me know when, you know, if there's any trial for me and this, these are my characteristics. And on the other side, you have medical researchers that are looking for patients. These two can kind of find each other and we can increase the amount of connections and hopefully accelerate the drug development from that point of view. The data has to be structured on both sides. So what you've done is created structured fields that they can enter what they're looking for that are aligned with the structured fields that the patients are filling out on the other side so you can match. That is exactly right. We structured all the eligibility criteria. We used dozens of ontologies. We created our own ontologies when there wasn't one available. We created a lot of rules and inferences. We apply uh, artificial intelligence to complement the pieces that, you know, help the search to, especially on the matching side between patients and trials, essentially uh, making the process much, much smarter, much more complex, you know, under the hood, but on the other side, much easier from the the patient perspective. In, In the normal world, before Antidote, when somebody, whether a patient, a caregiver, or a doctor, wanted to look for a clinical trial, you basically uh, need to put a condition and a location, and you get a list of trials that meet the, this pair of, of data points. Um, there's very little else that you can refine, but essentially that those are the two. And you have a list. So whether you're the patient, whether you're the caregiver, or you're the doctor, you now have to read each one of those studies and the eligibility criteria. These are really long and complex texts, and you need to basically identify which ones are relevant for you or not. What we've done is converted that into a simple question-based process that goes, you know, dynamically asking you questions based on the underlying pool of, of trials that you match to and find the matching trial for you. There's a number of initiatives that are going on right now. Like, for example, I just got a request from someone to be on the podcast from the National Institute of Health about their, I'm just reading this email that they sent me, All of Us Research Program, the bioaggregating data. You know, they want, I'm just looking at this. The program will partner with 1 million people across the United States, diverse biomedical data resource, help researchers gain better insights. You know, so you've got initiative like that, Google just announced their idea of aggregating a whole bunch of healthcare data. Do you see those databases as an augmentation of what you're doing? Or do you see them as competition in some way? 
We see them as complement to what we do. One of the things that we are capturing, which I think is essential, there are many repositories of information, EMRs, claims, you know, all sorts of, of, of places where, you, you know, genomics, databases, where you can capture a lot of very relevant, very detailed information about patients. What we are capturing, I think, that is quite unique is the intent, the interest and availability of a patient to participate in a trial. And all of that is missing from all the other pieces. All of those are proxies of information about patient population, which is super valuable for many things, but it's not doesn't translate into participants in, into a clinical trial. What is different from our point of view is that we are collecting not just, you know, some level, not as granular as an electronic medical record, but information that is coming straight from the patients who are saying, hey, I'm raising my hand, I'm here today, and I would like to participate in a clinical trial that is relevant for me. I'd like to get your take on something. I, I was talking to someone who, maybe I was reading something, about a woman who actually died of breast cancer. But she was a researcher herself, and she wrote a very compelling essay before she died. And her point was this. She's like, every clinical trial is a trial of one. Because especially with oncology these days, no one is the same. You know, like you do a clinical trial and she allegedly fits the criteria of someone who the drug is indicated for and she takes it and it has absolutely no effect, especially mm -hmm. with, uh, relative to tumor types. So if we're talking about precision medicine here and the impact of, of a drug on any given individual, are clinical trials, do you think, going to be relevant for anything other than safety, which I know is usually what gets studied now. You know, like the FDA is not saying, oh, this drug is better than the standard of care. They're simply saying, oh, it's safe and it, it will get FDA approval. But, you know, if you're talking about life and death situations here, then a drug being safe actually is not half the story because it could be safe, but you're losing very, very valuable time while you're struggling trying to find the agent that's going to keep this tumor under control. What are your thoughts on that? I think that the clinical trials, especially in oncology, yes, you know, are becoming more and more, you know, specialized. I think the, the way that probably science and technology are going to evolve is we hope that at some point, you know, the, the data models and, and even perhaps, you know, artificial systems can better and better simulate the response of a new uh, or unknown drug in a, in a living organism. So what we would be able to do uh, eventually is eliminate more and more the, the potential risks. But at some point, somebody's going to be the first patient to actually, you know, take this drug, right? Like, you know, so um, I think that clinical trials are always going to be, you know, part of the system unless, you know, at one point the, the data modeling and the artificial tissues or anything like that or organs, you know, can be so advanced that we can, you know, replicate that. But otherwise, you can see why there, there always should be some form of observational, if you want, even, you know, process in which we monitor very carefully and we control the variables of, an ex of, of the first time that it's actually taken by humans. You know, obviously, I didn't want to imply that safety is not a concern. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wanted to make that point very clear. So, if, <laughs> so if, if, if someone is a patient and they are looking to sign up for the Antidote platform, they just they go to Antidote.me. Dot .me. Okay. And yeah. then from there, it's pretty self-explanatory? Absolutely. 
And if someone is a CRO or a pharmaceutical company or a research facility, same place? Yep, they can come and visit us anytime, antidote.me, or they can email us at hello at antidote.me. Awesome. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Pablo. No, thank you, Stacey. It was great to be here. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.